Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 285 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the new TV series, Star Trek Discovery. And this will include spoilers for the first nine episodes of the show, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got our producer, John Joseph Adams. He's the editor of Lightspeed and Nightmare Magazines, and he also oversees John Joseph Adams' books, an imprint of Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. He's the series editor of The Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy, and he's also edited many other books, including anthologies of outer space adventure like Cosmic Powers and Federations. So, John, welcome back. Always good to be here. The next up, we've got Sarah Lynn Mishner, who you may remember from our panel on Blade Runner 2049 back in episode 277, our panel on The Handmaid's Tale back in episode 263, and our panel on Star Trek Beyond back in episode 214. She writes about feminism, culture, and politics for medium, and crafts laser-cut jewelry and soap with swear words inside. She lives in Northern California with a Renaissance engineer, a dog, and a bird, and considers Star Trek her third and best parent. So, Sarah, welcome to the show. Happy to be here. And also joining us today is Anthony Ha, who you may remember from our panel on Valerian back in episode 266, our panel on Incorporated back in episode 247, our panel on Black Mirror Season 3 back in episode 227, and our panel on Star Trek Beyond back in episode 214. He covers media, advertising, and pop culture for the news site TechCrunch, and a chapbook of his short stories called Love Songs for Monsters was published by Youth in Decline in 2014. So Anthony, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I also just want to mention that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy listeners have now contributed more than $40,000 to the show via Patreon. That's a huge amount of money in the podcasting world, so I just want to give a special thank you to everyone who supported the show, and I also want to give a special thank you to everyone at Patreon, many of whom I was lucky enough to meet last month at Patreon, without whom Geek's Guide to the Galaxy would not be possible. If you're a regular listener, I hope it's pretty clear by now that doing a show like this is a full-time job. Just given our weekly schedule, the length and detail of our episodes, the huge number of guests we feature, and the sheer variety of books, movies, TV shows, and topics that we cover. This podcast makes up the vast majority of my income, and Patreon support makes up the vast majority of the show's funding. And while $40,000 might sound like a lot of money, and it is, if you divide that by the three years that we've been on Patreon, I think you'll get a pretty clear idea that I'm doing this podcast because I love it and because I think it's important, and not for the money. For years, Geek's Guide to the Galaxy has been slowly growing its way toward long-term viability, which has been really exciting and rewarding. But 2017 is almost over, and it's looking like this will be the first year that the show brings in less funding than it did the year before. There's no dramatic reason for that. Mostly it's just because we had a few more large donations last year than this year. But it's still sort of disappointing. Currently, we have about 200 people supporting us on Patreon, which is about 1% of our audience. At 1% listener support, the podcast is viable. At 2%, it would be really solid, and at 3%, it would be a huge success, so it doesn't take that many people to make a big difference. I keep thinking about something that happened a few years ago. I went with some friends to a renaissance fair, and at one point, we spent an hour watching a juggling show. It was a fun show, but not great. The juggler kept dropping things, and some of his jokes were kind of tasteless. At the end of the show, he passed around his hat, and I gave him a few dollars. My girlfriend said, Did you really think he was that good? And I sort of said, I mean, I didn't think he was great, but I did choose to sit here and watch him for an hour, so I figure I owe him something. I think that's a good way to look at it, and I hope we're moving into an era where more and more people will do that. We'll just make it a habit to give small payments to anyone whose work you choose to spend time with. 
And so if you're with me on that, I'll just point out that Patreon is quickly becoming the go-to platform for supporting writers and artists online. You just have to sign up for Patreon once, and then it's really easy to support multiple creators and also to shift your support from one creator to another, depending on what you're most excited about. So I really hope everyone will consider doing that. And as always, if you want to support Geek's Guide to the Galaxy, you can sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And you can also make a one-time contribution via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. And if there are any rewards we could offer, topics we could cover, or changes we could make that would motivate you to sign up, please let us know over at geeksgalaxy at gmail.com. All right, so now let's get to our panel. Okay, and so this show, Star Trek Discovery, starts out with kind of a special two-part episode with lots of spaceships exploding in it. <laughs> so, John, what did you think of this two-part opener? Uh, well, I thought it was a little bit of a confusing uh, way to start things off. Uh, I feel like the show sort of gets better as it goes along, but um, it's especially weird, uh, like the two-part opener, because CBS decided to air the first part on CBS, the actual network, and then the rest of the show is uh, only on CBS All Access, the digital you know streaming platform. Uh, so it's like, if you watch the first episode... You haven't really seen the first episode. You've only seen half the first episode. So I thought that was weird, but um but well, I mean, that, I was, the, that was... was the plan though, right? Is it sort of like a cliffhanger <laughs> I mean, and then they everyone's just supposed to go over and sign up immediately for CBS All Access so they can see the second part? I mean, I guess, but I mean, it's just if, if I felt like it left you in a weird place like that that you don't really get the experience of what the show is. I mean, and, and the show doesn't even really start until episode like three, I think, really, or three or four. I can't remember which episode where uh, where like you know they finally get the their own captain, you know, and uh, I think that's a, episode three. But or they actually get on the Discovery. The first the first two episodes, it's like they're they're on the other ship, right? Um, but um, but yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I thought it was uh, I thought it was interesting. I mean, I, just like overall, like I. I like the show, but I have, like, a lot of, like, little complaints about it that, like, keep me from, like, loving it wholeheartedly, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know, like, so the first, the first two episodes, uh, you know, it's very, very explodey and very, uh, war-focused, which isn't my preference for Star Trek, but they did a pretty good job with it. I mean, we can nitpick a lot of the specific details of that, uh, but I figure let everybody else buy in first well yeah let me just say i mean i thought the production values of these first two episodes just blew me away it was just mm -hmm. you know it looked so much better than i was expecting the show to look do you agree with that oh yeah totally yeah no it looks great um yeah i mean all of the all of the effects look great all the costume design and everything looks really good um yeah i don't have any complaints with that it all, it all looks fantastic yeah. well so how about sarah what did you think of these first two episodes I thought it was a really bold choice, um, and one that ultimately, once I realized what they were doing, I feel like I approved of. I mean, you know, they essentially started or spent two whole episodes on what is essentially a flashback. Um, you know, because the story isn't that. The story is not, you know, uh, what happened uh, aboard the, uh, you know, the first ship with Giorgio and so forth. So it's really interesting because they could have, you know, actually just started it with episode three and then slowly gave us pieces and pieces of those first two episodes, the way that flashbacks are usually done. But I think it was more emotionally effective to do it the way that they did it. Um, because they were also kind of telling us, by the way, we're doing something different with this. And 
<laughs> we we don't it's almost as if they were trying to say we don't give a fuck you know <laughs> it's like they they were uh just like we're going to kill off the main character you know after the first uh main episode and you know but ultimately i think that it's very effective because you are so much more emotionally emotionally invested than you would be if they kind of petered that information out over the course of the first season mm-hmm and actually, they could have they could have said, "I don't give a fuck," because now you can swear on Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> right. CBS All Access, everything goes. Well, yeah. So let me just say, maybe for people who may be listening to this who don't have CBS All Access and are just trying to experience the show vicariously through our conversation about <laughs> it. So, um, so in these first two episodes, we get introduced to our main character, Michael Burnham, who is a black woman, and she is a high-ranking officer on a ship called the Shenz- Shenzhou. Uh, Shenzo, uh, something like that, um, under the command of this woman, Giorgio, who is, oh, shoot, I didn't, it's, um, help me out with this actress's name. Um, uh, Michelle Yeoh. Michelle Yeoh. And so uh, they are, they discover an object in space, which turns out to be sort of a Klingon mausoleum or something. And uh, there's a showdown between the Federation and the Klingons. And Michael Burnham ends up uh, committing mutiny because she feels like they have to attack the Klingons and Starfleet isn't going to do that if she doesn't take bold, decisive action and all hell breaks loose and Giorgio, her mentor, dies Uh, and a lot of other people die as well. Uh, so Actually, about- uh, I, I think it's also useful to, uh, useful context that Michael is, uh, human, but she was actually raised, uh, Vulcan, uh, because her whole family was massacred by Klingons. So kind of, you know, all, all fits into the plot line here. Yeah. So, so Anthony, am I, am I missing any important details here? Uh, no, I mean, I think that that's pretty much covers it. I mean, I think one of the things that is, um, interesting about that sort of context or maybe slightly confusing about that context is also then to what extent Michael carries responsibility for what happens afterwards for Giorgio's death and and for the battle, because it seems like everyone in Starfleet basically blames her for starting the war with the Klingons, which I don't really think is completely borne out by what you see in those two episodes. Well, right. I mean, I, I honestly found the mutiny a little hard to believe. Um, did anyone else, Sarah, what did you, what did you think about this, this mutiny thing? I didn't find it hard to believe if within the context of her Vulcan upbringing. And, you know, I mean, first of all, you have the, clearly she still has some form of PTSD from her childhood experience, right? And so it, but I think that if it was just that, it wouldn't be enough to make it believable because she would know that, you know, Starfleet is a naval organization. They are going to not respond well to this. They're not going to suddenly go, oh, you're right. We should just, you know, not only throw the captain's orders out the window, but also throw Starfleet's orders out the window, which is clearly never to attack first. That is just not who Starfleet is, you know, if it's, if it's, if we're going to personify Starfleet. Uh, and so, but I think that that's, that part of her decision is mainly, mainly the Vulcan part. You know, she had just spoken to Sarek, and she strongly believes that she is genuinely trying to save everyone. She strongly believes that everyone's going to die. And, you know, so it's kind of interesting that, uh, that uh, to me, you know, there was kind of a moment of unbelievability, and then I was like, ah, you know what, though, she's really... 
she really has been raised to think logically, and in many ways, her decision may have saved lives. That we'll never know. It doesn't seem like a Vulcan thing to do. I mean, can, you guys know a lot more about hmm. Star Trek than I do, but is that has that ever been established before that the Vulcans would believe that you have to fire first on Klingons, otherwise they'll just walk all over you? I don't know that you get a strong sense that they're particularly pacifistic. I mean, they're logical, but I mean, I, I think it, it right. at least I'm and, and I'm, I haven't seen like especially some of the later series, but, but my sense, it, it didn't totally, it wasn't what I would have guessed would have come from like a, an episode called the Vulcan Hello, but it didn't totally, you know, contradict my sense of, of how Vulcans work. Yeah. I don't think that the, that the logic and the pacifism are supposed to go together in, in any way. I think that Vulcans, if anything, would severely look down on the Klingon culture. Um, and so they would see it from the perspective of, okay, what do these people need in order for us to effectively communicate with them and to figure out what that is? It, it does kind of make sense to me that they would just figure out, well, logically, these people value war, and that's what we're going to give them. Uh, I was I was going to say, uh, you know, one thing about the um, the way the plot uh, plays out, I, I was kind of feeling like it would have uh, it would have potentially been more satisfying, sort of. Um, uh, just sort of narratively, if, uh, you know, so Michael was the lone survivor of a previous Klingon massacre. Uh, I thought it, I thought that that's what was going to happen again, that, you know, cause like basically her, I mean, most of her, most of her crew dies in this battle, but she's not the only survivor. There's multiple survivors from her ship, um, including Saru. And, uh, there's that woman that's on the bridge that has the little implant on her head, which I don't know. We, I don't know if we've ever heard her name before, but, um, you know, there's a couple of, I think there's, there, there might be other, uh, survivors as well, but certainly those two, um, in addition to Michael. Uh, but I, I just, I kind of thought like, Oh, like that would have made narrative sense, uh, for her to again, be the, the lone survivor. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that's not what happened. Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, well, and also, it's like, even, even as I was wondering if that might happen, I was like, well, it's clearly not gonna happen. They're not gonna spend all that time designing a character like Saru and then, like, <laughs> let him die after the first two episodes. Um, although, like, um, like a lot of things on this show, like, his, his character is kind of one of those things where it's, well, where you kind of wonder as a Star Trek fan, it's like, well, how come we've never seen this race before? Like, I mean, because this, this is supposed to take place before, wait, it's before the original series, right? Like, yeah, right before? Yeah, it's it? about 10 years before, I think, yeah. Yeah, and so it's like, well, how come we've never seen that race before? Do, do they get entirely wiped out? Like, did their threat ganglia not uh, warn them of this, <laughs> uh, you, you know, this threat that's, that wipes out their whole planet? But, um, I don't know, there's, there's things that as, as the series goes on, um, that I kind of, have some ideas about but um about that but anyway uh, well, i don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves yeah, well, well let me say about that character saru because he is in the first episode um yeah so he's it's um doug jones plays him who also played abe sapien in the hellboy movies and he's a very very tall slender actor and is also a, a former contortionist and so he plays a lot of um, creatures, you know, inside, uh, costumes and prosthetics and things. And I, I really liked him in this. I thought that, um, mm -hmm. Saru was one of the least silly looking humanoid aliens mm -hmm. I think I've ever seen in science fiction. Yeah. yeah, no, he looks really good. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, um, I agree with that as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, go ahead. Well, 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 and let's say then on that, what do you, what do you guys think of the Klingons? Like, I, uh, I thought they were pretty cool. I mean, they look much different from Klingons in, say, Next Generation. I was never, 
to be honest, super attached to the way that the Klingons looked in the past. So I don't have a whole lot of attachment to that. But uh, as as sort of a, how about Sarah? As more of a hardcore Star Trek fan, how did you feel about these new Klingons? I mean, I I understand that you know the Klingons look has been messed with many times. Um, so in terms of you know, continuity. I'm like, okay, I guess that's what they're going to do again. And at first mm-hmm. it was like, okay, so these are sort of vaguely Egyptian orcs, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and it was weird. And, but you know, I mean, I'm like, I, I love the show on so many other levels that I have faith that they, that there's going to be some kind of reason will emerge for them going to the extent of making them so different. Yeah, so uh, you know, I I had I had some issues with it, um, and not not just as like a Star Trek continuity uh, person, you know, like so like obviously, yeah, like they've messed with the look of them before, so that's fine. I, I expected them to make some changes like that. Um, one of my complaints is that I feel like the 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 makeup is is too like uh, it's too like static. It's like it's too hard for the actors to like really fully emote as much as I would like them to be able to. Yeah. Um, so it's like it's almost like a it's like a like a firm mask that's that's really hard for them to really uh, act in. Um, and so I feel like that holds it back a little bit. Um, but uh, my other concern about the change of the of the Klingons is how the language is so different. That was way more. Uh, that that threw me way more than the visual uh changes because I, it's like you know i've heard a lot of uh klingon spoken on star trek before and it's like this is so different and it's like i don't know like i'd, I'd love to get like a linguist um point of view on this like is is the way that they speak is that like does that make sense as like a total alien language that it sounds so weird to me because it's like they they talk so slow and it's like so different from what we've heard before that like uh like I can't even make any sense of it like um and uh uh at the same time it's like and then this is a more minor point but it's like when they subtitle the Klingon text like I like that they do that but I'm like why did they pick that weird stupid font that they put it in just put it in a plain font like it's not they're, they're not it's it's like it's like it's like the complaint um you know like uh, Daniel Jose Older and folks uh point out like oh don't italicize words that are in spanish because they're not like pronouncing it a certain way they're just saying it in spanish uh and it's like th- i feel like this is like doing the same thing but like with an alien language it's like oh well, we can't just put it in regular text we got to put it in like this ornate font it's like no just put it in regular font uh, <laughs> really like, bug me anyway so anthony what did you think about the font <laughs> I didn't have strong feelings about the font, but partly because I agreed with most of what the other things John was saying, because the Klingon scenes are definitely my least favorite part of the show, because, yeah, you just, and it's like, the, the makeup, I think, looks cool, but it's hard for them to get a great sense of their expression, and the character, and all the Klingons kind of look kind of similar, so it's kind of hard, some, it can be hard to tell which Klingon is talking in which moment, which is why they, I think they had to introduce things like scars and, like, makeup and things like that. Um, so I, I think like it's, it's hard to, you know, tell the difference between some of the Klingons and then also when they speak, they speak in this monotone that is this sort of, you know, my eyes just, you know, I just, it doesn't register as like dialogue. It, it just feels like everyone's sort of declaiming this speech that they haven't really, that doesn't really convey any meaning or emotion. And so I really did not enjoy those scenes. Mm-hmm. All right, so mixed feelings about the Klingons. I thought they were kind of cool. I agree with you guys that the the makeup is very heavy, which limits the ability of the actors. But I feel like they're not going to cast actual aliens, so I, I have to <laughs> give them some 
you know, latitude for that kind of stuff, but sure. I don't know. So yeah, so obviously mixed feelings on the Klingons though. Uh, okay. Anyone have anything else they want to say about these first two episodes before we move on to episode three? I guess the one other thing I wanted to bring up was just the experience of watching them for the first time. I think they'd done a pretty good job of like really not revealing that much about the show. So it was to me like just like a constant surprise of like, oh, this is what is happening. Oh, I guess we're not even going to spend that much time on this initial ship that we're seeing. Because, you know, I think there was a sense that there were going to be these two ships in the show, these two different captains. But um, because like I really like went into it having been almost entirely unspoiled for the storylines, I think, like, especially just watching these first two or three episodes was just really a great experience from, from just, you know, a, a sense of just like, like nearly constant surprise. Well, yeah. Uh, well, let, let me say, yeah. I mean, I, I, I was kind of disappointed that I thought Michelle Yeoh was actually going to be in the show, you know, and I thought the um, relationship between her and Michael Burnham was really interesting. And until I was sort of disappointed that she dies. Mm-hmm. right away pretty much and i'm like oh yeah. she's not actually the captain um mm-hmm. that was a little bit of a letdown for me you know totally I, that's what i was just gonna say yeah i i wish i wish she was in the show more i i, I really liked her character i th- i agree i thought the dynamic between her and michael were, was great and and would have been really interesting to see more explored given the mutiny and everything like you know like what 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 would have happened like how could they have reconciled that if she had lived you know um but uh but yeah you know it's uh yeah, I mean that's that 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 was definitely a, a disappointment. Uh, okay, so then moving on to episode three, so uh, we pick up six months later, and Michael Burnham has been court-martialed and is on her way to prison or something, and uh, her ship gets. Wait, now it's been a while since I watched this. Hold on, her, so, something happens to the, <laughs> the ship gets attacked or something, right? The, I remember the um the it's captain, like a shuttle like, that gets the like there's some weird like alien like um bugs or something that start eating away at the, the or like they suck up the electricity or something like that. Yeah, and so then she gets rescued by this ship, the Discovery, and even though uh she is a convict, the captain who's Jason Isaacs uh seems like he doesn't care a whole lot about rules and stuff like that and so he uh, welcomes her aboard and kind of makes her a science officer and we get the feeling some weird stuff is going on on this ship um and people are very suspicious of her and it's very much not a traditional star trek setup where there's you know the crew is very supportive of each other and there's not a lot of conflict between the crew this is a uh this is not a not a happy crew Mm-hmm. Well, I feel like that a, a lot of that is set up to show what a big deal it would have been to have a, not just a mutineer, but their first mutineer, you know, that that would have been, um, because a lot of the hostility that we see in that, in that first episode where, where they're showing the discovery is because it's directed at Michael Burnham. I mean, you don't feel like there was sort of a weird dynamic on this ship even before she got there though. Well, they definitely are allowing, you know, for better or worse, I think, uh, they're definitely allowing the crew to be more quote unquote human <laughs> than previous. I think that, you know, previous iterations of Star Trek, they were definitely like, okay, well, we've, we've solved petty bickering and we've solved all this stuff that, that, you know, that Star Trek is kind of known for. Um, and they've really taken that to the next level. Um, and part of that may also just be a reflection of Starfleet at war and getting to know a ship's crew, you know, in a period where 
people would be more tense, you know, things would be a little bit more, you know, it's, it's not a, a relaxing familial environment that, you know, there would have been on the TNG enterprise, for instance. Right. So, so I agree. It's kind of, it's interesting and different, but I sort of had mixed feelings about it because that is one of the things that makes Star Trek special to me is that you sort of go into this better future mm -hmm. and there's just something interesting and different about mm -hmm. that. Right. Um, and, you know, if I want, cause, cause these characters all act pretty much like people that I would interact with on a, you know, I mean, they're, they're, they don't seem totally, uh, they don't seem much different from 2017 people that I know. Um, See, Anthony, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, I mean, I think that's a balance that Star Trek has always had to sort of strike of, I think, wanting to have somewhat idealized versions of these characters, but at the same time, not sort of like leeching all drama and believability from it. And, and obviously this show veers more towards the kind of, you know, um, fallible human characters. Um, I, I guess the other thing I, I think about is if I think about a show like like Next Generation, that the, the the crew members of the Enterprise are all you seem like genuinely good people, um, but that there's not necessarily a sense that all of Starfleet is mm -hmm. quite this enlightened. I mean that that a lot a lot of storylines revolve around Picard, you know, having to deal with other captains or other admirables admirals who are doing you know shady things. Yeah. Um, and so I, I guess again it it didn't. It, it felt different for sure. I mean, particularly just the, the dynamic where you can't trust the captain of the ship, which I mean, starts to get into mm -hmm. what happens in later episodes, but that just makes me like really, you know, just the, sh the show feel really different from the, from, um, any other Star Trek show. But it didn't, again, it didn't feel like it was totally breaking the rules of what Star Trek has done before. Yeah, I mean, I totally, I totally get what you're saying there, Dave. I mean, and it's like, yeah, it definitely has this very different feel as far as the characters go, and like, that, and they're clearly just not trying to do that in this in this Star Trek. They're not trying to have that uh, sort of uh, a paragon of virtue type of character or that sort of idealized version of humanity, uh, you know, set of characters like we had on previous Star Treks. Um, uh, although I also wondered if part of it was, I mean, like part of it's like, um, you know, clearly, like, yeah, like. Uh, you know, like Sarah was saying that, you know, well, they're at war, but then also it's like, uh, I mean, the Discovery is not the flagship, right? It's, uh, it's, it's, it's like this, some kind of weird experimental ship or something, right? Even yeah. before they get to spore drive. Um, and Lorca is like a weird, you know, <laughs> like plays by his own rules guy or whatever. Like, you know, so it's like, whereas the Enterprise was the flagship. And so, uh, you know, they, although, I mean, even on, even on Voyager, which was not a flagship in, in, in any way, um, you know, they, they behaved in this sort of more idealized fashion. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, they're clearly trying to go more gritty and stuff. And, and I, and I, and I have some theories, um, about why that might be, uh, besides just because they wanted to be gritty, but, um, yeah. yeah, but yeah, it definitely gives it a different feel. Well, let me just say, because there's kind of an interesting uh, history of this that, you know, I don't know if, there's this documentary I don't know if you guys have seen called um, Chaos on the Bridge, where it's about the the making of Star Trek Next Generation. But that basically they said that um, by the time Next Generation came around that um, Gene Roddenberry had really, he had been praised so much as a visionary that in the views of some people, he had kind of started to buy into his own hype a little bit too much and wanted the show to be visionary and mm -hmm. wanted the crew to not, to you know, to be this better version of humanity in the future, and that the writers really rebelled against that because they're like, oh, it's just impossible to tell <laughs> dramatic stories when the crew all gets along, and that was you know sort of a constant source of tension. And then after Ron Berry died, um, Rick Berman um, sort of tried to carry on that legacy, 
and uh, he's a producer. And so like he had a more active role in Voyager. And so the crew in Voyager is more like that, whereas he mm -hmm. had less of a role, my understanding is, on um, uh, Deep Space Nine and Enterprise. And so there's you know, there's mm -hmm. a little bit more sort of conflict between the crews and on those shows. Um, but that, that has been sort of like a tension throughout the whole history of Star Trek is how do you tell dramatic stories if the crew is all going to be getting along with each other all the time? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and to me, it's it's so much more important what kind of tension you're talking about rather than whether or not there is or isn't tension. Like, it would bother me if Star Trek started to have the kinds of dramatic tension that are known tropes in our universe. So, for instance, you know, two women arguing about a man, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. If that happened on Star Trek, I would just weep. I would be so <laughs> sad. Um, so, you know, it, it, I think it's... It, we Roddenberry's vision was not necessarily saying that humanity had evolved to, to adopt these beliefs, but that humanity had embraced genuine... Uh, a different culture and, and uh, uh, it, there was nothing biological about this change. And so to me, that's even scarier because it means that it can be revoked anytime. It means that it can be established more or less on certain ships under the direction of different captains. You know, it's just a, a social order. And so th that's very fragile. Okay, so so yeah, so Michael Burnham is on this new ship, the Discovery, and in episode three, they kind of find this derelict ship and uh, head over to it and are attacked by some sort of giant monster and end up and it, 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 the episode ends with the captain kind of in uh, having taken this monster into custody. And at this point, I was like, okay, this is just not seeming Star Trek at all to me. This is, I mean, like my, my impression of the first two episodes was like, oh, this is a lot better than I was expecting it to be. But this feels a lot more like Battlestar Galactica than Star mm -hmm. Trek to me. And then with episode three, I, I, I was kind of about ready to bail at that point mm -hmm. um, because it was just like, what, now they're going to, there's like a monster on the ship and stuff. I don't know. But then in episode four, it turns out that this monster isn't really a monster. It's kind of like a misunderstood you know, alien creature, and that's much more Star Trekky to me. And then they actually need it to set up their new spore drive, which allows them to instantly teleport anywhere in the known universe or something. And so, uh, I I liked uh, sort of after episode at, at the end of episode four, once that kind of stuff is established, I was getting a lot more on board with this show. Um, I don't. So, did you guys have a similar trajectory with the episodes, or much different? Or uh, see, John, what do you think about that? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I, I think I started to feel more like Star Trek, certainly. Yeah, like, like you say, around the same, I, I think I was having the same sort of, uh, trajectory there. Uh, cause yeah, I mean, like the first two episodes, like, you know, it, it felt like Star Trek in this, in, in the sense of like, you know, every now and then they'd have some kind of big military sort of, uh, oriented, uh, arc. Like, you know, maybe it's a two-parter or, or like they just do a single episode or whatever. So it's like, we've seen that with Star Trek before. So that wasn't so dissimilar. And obviously there's a lot of stuff with, with Klingons fighting the Federation and all that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you know, it's like, yeah, it kind of felt like, 
you know, that sort of exploration type of, uh, episode when they encounter the weird alien creature. And then, um, although they, they all, they also, uh, clearly make it, uh, make it, or they, they definitely make it clear that, um, that this isn't your father's Star Trek or whatever. Um, because when they, when they like experiment on it basically, and like, you know, basically it's like, uh, it's like, Oh, Hey, we can use this thing to make our drive go. And, um, you know, and then only like later realize like, oh, wait, actually we're hurting that thing, you know? <laughs> so it's like, it, well, it didn't really seem like a really kind thing to just play. Hey, let's, let's see if we can make it make our spore drive go, you know? But, well, but at the same time, it happens fairly quickly. The jump yeah. between, you know, I was worried when, as soon as you start seeing that the monster is just this poor, sad tardigrade, you, you know, you just, and and they did a really good job, by the way, uh, making that emotionally affecting and you really feel for this creature. Um, but like basically in this, in the course of one or two episodes, as soon as they realized that it was sentient and they were hurting it, they were like, Oh, mm-hmm. okay, we're going to let it go. And to me, that was amazing because I was so worried. I was like, Oh God, are they going to do that thing where they spend several episodes, you know, with char- some characters wanting to exploit it and some characters wanting to free it. Cause I, I didn't really want to watch that. You know, I was like, I, I just, and so it was nice to me that it's to be reminded, oh wait, it is still Starfleet. They do still operate in this humanist universe where as soon as they realized that they were hurting it, they were like, okay, well, we need to let it go, period. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so I have to say, I mean, I think that the show, as I said, the production values are fantastic. I think in general, the acting is really good. I think the writing mm-hmm. is generally pretty good. But just every once in a while, there's just like some moment that I find just bafflingly <laughs> off. And mm-hmm. one of those was the part where the security chief is like, I'm going to cut its claws off and opens up <laughs> the cell and like is obviously, oh, yeah, is obviously going to die. And then it like dies 30, <laughs> you know, 10 seconds later. And right. I, I'm just sort of baffled by it. there were just like moments like that where I'm just like, like the rest of it is so like, is fairly strong. And then every once in a while, there's just like a scene like that where I'm just like, huh? Like, how did this, how did this get into the totally. show? Totally agree. And like, um, I don't remember what episode it was in, but like Michael, like subverts a security system that's powered by breath for some reason. Like, it's like she steals like, uh, Tilly's pillow because it has her drool okay. on it. And she uses that to like defeat this like breath based security system. I'm like, what? 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 That's so stupid though. Like, like, I mean, they, they, they would have like retinal scans. Like, is, is that more secure than a retinal scan? It doesn't seem like it. Well, um, they did say though that that was a setup for her. It was a setup? Yeah, like the Captain Lorca did that on purpose and made it easy for her to crack on purpose because he was testing her. Like he, she called him out on that. Like this was obviously an extremely easy way to bypass security. And I don't oh. think since then they've ever showed that breath thing happen again. Right, right. Yeah, I don't, I, I didn't remember that, that they called, that they called it out, but I mean, it's still, it seems like a, wouldn't, wouldn't she have been confused that this was even a thing that was used on a starship though? Like, it's like she goes and easily subverts it, but it's like, wouldn't she be like, what the fuck is this? What, what is this? This is not security. Like, wh- what kind of, what kind of ragtag ship am I on here? You know, like, uh, anyway, I don't know. Um, but that, but that was one of those things. Um, and then there was, uh, whatever episode, um, it's the one that fucking Akiva Goldsman wrote, but, um, the, uh, I think Michael's like crawling through like a, a Jeffrey's tube or whatever. And, and she starts like reciting, uh, was it Alice in Wonderland or something? She like some kind of, you know, thing. Um, and it was just like so annoying and stupid. It's like, why are you saying that out loud? And like, what? I mean, it's, uh, I don't know. It was just really annoying. I loved that part. 
Oh, really? I hated it. I hated it so much. And it's like, even if she was going to recite something, shouldn't she have recited some kind of Vulcan thing? She was raised Vulcan. Well, like, I mean, she... I mean, sure. I mean, I guess she would have been exposed to human culture, but I mean, like, she's Vulcan, though. Like, in that kind of intense situation, she's going to recite Alice in Wonderland? Like, I don't know. She's or whatever human. And they have actually, I mean, they've, they've, they keep bringing that book up. And to me, the show feels, the whole show, feels kind of like an Alice in Wonderland experience for Star Trek fans, right? It's like this sort of bizarre, like I think that, that the use of that story in particular will become stronger as more episodes come out. But that's like such a heavy-handed way of trying to make the comparison to Alice in Wonderland. It's like have a character randomly recite part of the text like in, in this intense situation, like I don't know, I just hated everything about that. I mean, okay. how often have they done the same thing with Melville, with Shakespeare? I mean, this is like to me, it, it was sort of an <laughs> adorable ode to classic Star Trek because the, they do that all the time. You know, all the all these characters who have physical books, uh, physical copies of you know one or two very known to us books, and you're like, why don't they have books that are known to them in their time? You know, but it, it, so that to me, it was just sort of part of the whole me. Okay, this is classic Star Trek feel. Okay, that- I, I think John and Sarah are going to have to agree to disagree on this one. But, uh, <laughs> sure. I want to I want to pick up Sarah on because I think the Alice in Wonderland connection is kind of interesting, given the spore drive, which yeah. somehow involves mushroom like trans dimensional <laughs> mushrooms or something like that. Um, yeah, which is kind of a, a, a very Alice in Wonderland sort of co- uh, concept. Um, I don't know. Does, it, does, does anyone have a more robust explanation for how the spore drive works than I've just uh, given here? <laughs> uh, I mean, I don't know. It's just, yeah, it, I don't know. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, but, uh, I think it's, I think it's something about like how, like, uh, like, like mycelium or whatever, or, like mushroom, you know, sort of fungus creature or fungus, uh, you know, fungus, uh, has like this weird network of interconnected, in, in a, interconnectivity or something like in, in like the real world, like where it's like there's, it's like theorized, like they have some kind of almost like a joint consciousness kind of deal. Like, you know, uh, I don't know. It's all, it's all kind of weird. Oh, but you're saying that in real, in real life, if you see a patch of mushrooms that underground, they're all connected to each other and they're kind of like one. Like hive, right? I, I I think I mean I, I kind of vaguely am recalling uh, reading about something like that, but I think like yeah, I think like that's what that's trying to riff on. Um, but then I, I'm not really sure how it goes from that to like you know being able to transport to anywhere in the galaxy or whatever. Yeah. Um, but so yeah, so the the crew member who is sort of in charge of this uh, spore drive technology project is this guy Paul Stamets. So uh, Anthony, what'd you think of this character, Paul Stamets? Um, he's, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I like the character a lot because, um, that he's, you know, sort of initially kind of standoffish and not really interested in engaging with Michael and is, and is super focused on, you know, just developing this technology. But over the course of several episodes, you kind of see him warm to her and understand, you know, um, some of the things that are driving him. Um, and I think, I mean, I think Anthony Rapp is just really charming, um, playing, playing the character. So I'm not sure that like, you know, you, we've seen sort of, uh, the full kind of extent of his, I mean, I, I think there's just still a lot of room to kind of explore his personality, but, but in terms of what we've gotten so far, I, I think he's, he's one of the most engaging characters. Yeah. Right. I, I think we should mention that this is the first openly gay character in a Star Trek TV series. 
Mm-hmm. And and so Paul, this character Paul Stamets is married to the ship's doctor, um, whose name I actually I didn't write down, um, but he's the guy from My So Called Life. If anyone remembers that, <laughs> right? And I mean, I think the way that they're introduced as a couple um, is is really fun. Like just seeing them kind of like brushing their teeth together, but then having yeah. that sort of slightly more horrific or eerie moment at the end, and and just their whole relationship where the where the doctor. Um, is very much like this is all a terrible idea. Uh, th- this is all bad, but like I'm not, I'm not going to sort of like try to talk you out of something that that you're obviously you know dedicated to. Um, I think a lot of their relationship dynamic, yeah, just seems to work really well. Yeah. So, so this was one thing I really liked about the show, and this is something that that John that we talked about in our Star Trek wish list episode mm-hmm. um, back when this this show was first announced before we knew any details about it, but that we did want to see more diversity in the show and, you know, having an openly gay couple and having a mm-hmm. black uh, lead character was, I think, very, you know, very much the kind of things that we were hoping to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they they definitely uh, did a pretty good job with that. Um, I saw one of our listeners, when you had asked what did people think of the show, uh, one of our listeners mentioned that she had issues with the treatment of gender on the show, but I, I, I wish she had explained what she meant more. I didn't I didn't quite know why she was saying that. Um, did anybody else have any issues with that? I felt like that, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, representation of, of, you know, men and women on the show. I mean, I, I mean, if the complaint is that there's no representation of, uh, you know, uh, non-binary people and things like that, I mean, that's legit, but, um, I, uh, I mean, a lot of the characters, we don't even know anything about them yet. So, right. um, I, I mean, I think it, it might be, um, it might be that there is representation. We just haven't seen it yet. But I mean, I, I can also see people being like impatient to 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 see, uh, or not impatient, but you know, eager to see um, that representation actually on screen if if it's there. But did anybody else have any issues with that or anything? Or no, and I, I saw that comment as well this morning, and I I, I you know it'd be worth asking what she meant by it because I I couldn't imagine what she meant by it. Hmm. See, Sarah, what did you think of Sylvia Tilly, who is Michael Burnham's roommate? I love her. <laughs> She's great. I, I, I mean, it's, it's funny because on Star Trek, you have always so many characters who are very polished. And you just assume that that's part of Starfleet training, you know? And when they do have awkward characters, it's, you know, kind of a Lieutenant Barkley situation where you have mm. characters who are so awkward you know, interferes with their ability to do their job. And very rarely do you just see characters who are, you know, they are who they are. They're awkward, but they're still complex. And it's not the point of that episode. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's part of her character. Um, and so I really love the dynamic between, uh, Tilly and Michael, um, because they're so different, you know, but you can just see Michael warming to her you know, every episode and, you know, at the same time valuing her as an individual and valuing her strengths. Um, so I absolutely love it because I, I just, I can't really think of a character that we've had on Star Trek that is like that. Yeah. You know, there's a, there was an essay by Ursula Le Guin that I read years and years and years ago. I, I wish I could remember the exact title, but it's something along the lines of Mrs. Jones on the holodeck or it's something like that. But she's making this point basically is that there are these kinds of ordinary people that you don't you you don't almost ever see on the decks of starships and things like that and yeah. that 
you know, that the in her view, the the, the decks of starships would would sort of the, the fiction of it would kind of crumble if an ordinary person were to step on because they're so, you know, it's it's such a space where that kind of person never exists. And I felt yeah. like Tilly was exactly that kind of character. Like, even though I said all these characters kind of seem like 2017 types of people, she's the one who most seems like somebody you, you would know in real life. Right. Mm-hmm. And to be fair, David, you do know a lot of like, you know, uh, effective altruists <laughs> and <laughs> rationalists and science fiction fans, which, you know, this is quite a bubble. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I was, I was saying, you know, my, my perfect version of a Star Trek show would be there's, you have a character like uh, Chris Pines, Kirk, and he joins a crew of all Vulcans. And then right. just wants to be more Vulcan throughout the course of five <laughs> seasons. And then when he's completely Vulcan, the show's over and everyone. Yeah. <laughs> but, right. But, and yeah. I mean, I would say that as much as I like the, I mean, Tilly is also a character. I just think when she's on screen, it's, it's terrific. Um, but I can, in, in, as we were talking about it, it made me think about that comment about gender and, you know, that, that part of the dynamic of the show, right, is that Burnham is primarily identify. I mean, like her personality seems to be primarily Vulcan and, you know, particularly in her interactions with Tilly is, you know, sort of learning to become more human, which I think in some ways then manifests as being like more emotional um, and, you know, like, you know, pursuing like romantic relationships. So maybe becoming sort of more traditionally feminine in some ways. And so I can imagine that that can maybe for, for some people feels a little bit regressive. I just want to say about the name Michael Burnham. I really liked that because mm-hmm. I feel like science fiction doesn't enough, doesn't often enough acknowledge the way that uh, the gender of gender associations of names change over time. So like Kelly yeah. used to be a man's name and now it's a woman's name and things like that. But then yeah. I thought they sort of undercut that by having Tilly Somebody say, Oh, I've never it. met a woman <laughs> named Michael before. I was like, No, oh, come on. Oh, that yeah. was so good. Mm-hmm. And you know, you just yeah. kind of like blew it. Yeah. Well, yeah, I don't, I don't know that they were actually trying to do anything uh, particularly science fictional. Uh, apparently, it's a thing that Brian Fuller does uh, frequently: is uh, give a female character a, a traditionally male name. Um, it, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I hadn't noticed that, but uh, I saw an article talking about that because people were like, "Why is Michael's name Michael?" You know, and I guess that's a thing Brian Fuller does. So, uh, all right. So let's see what happens next. So. Um... Yeah, so they've got their their spore drive working, and shortly after that, Captain Lorca gets captured by Klingons and is thrown into a Klingon dungeon where he meets well, Harry. M- sorry, did sorry did we did we did we talk about how Stamets actually took over for the uh, for the for the tardigrade and like actually is the like person that's powering the spore drive at some point, or I don't remember when that yeah. happens. Well, I know. Yeah. So it's before that, but, but so, yeah. So, um, okay. I don't know if we explicitly said this, but yeah, so they, they let the tardigrade go and Stamets has somehow, wait, how did he, somehow he got like incorporated, incorporated tardigrade DNA into himself. Now I'm sort of vague mm-hmm. on how that happens, but so <laughs> yeah, this is the problem Whatever. with the show coming out <laughs> weekly. So I, I watched it yeah. almost stretched over the whole time it was coming out rather than binging it like I usually do. But, uh, but yeah, so somehow he's got tardigrade DNA and so they can use him in place of this creature to navigate the mycelial network and pop in and out of uh, any location they want. Um, but yeah, so then after that happens, then the captain Lorca gets captured and gets thrown into a Klingon dungeon where he meets Harry Mudd, who's a character from the original series. Mm. And this new character, Ash Tyler. Um, and, uh, 
uh, Lorca and Ash Tyler escape together, leaving Harry Mudd behind because he's very obnoxious. <laughs> and uh, Ash Tyler becomes the new head of security. Uh, to replace the former head of security who conveniently got himself <laughs> killed by the Dark Raid. Uh, so what do yeah, you the really, th- the really poor, the really poor head of security. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There was a, there was an opening. There was a legitimate job opening there. Um, but so Sarah, what did you think of, uh, uh, this show's, this show's presentation of Harry Mudd and this new character, Ash Tyler? Um, I think it was great. I, I, uh, had recently watched the original series Mudd episode, you know, and it's so different. And I mean, it's one of the reasons actually why I, I don't actually give a crap about canon that much. Like, I, I think that when, when a show tries too hard to adhere to canon, um, it doesn't have as much flexibility for creativity. And, you know, even the idea that some people are even suggesting that there would be, um, you know, that, that there would, that they should build an entire ship based on outdated technology is just nuts. Mm. I mean, it's, it's just crazy. Um, and so, you know, when I, when I had watched the, the mud episode, it's so dated. It's one of the most dated Star Trek episodes that we have in part because of its, you know, reliance on sort of the humor of 1960s ideas of gender roles, uh, to make the story happen. And so, um, you know, I loved the fact that, you know, you have this completely different Harry Mutt who has just enough of that obnoxious, you know, qualities about him to carry the thread through, but that beyond that, you know, they didn't really, uh, feel like they had to, you know, pull too much of it through. Thank goodness. Um, and it also simultaneously that whole episode, um, wh- where they deal with Harry Mudd. Oh wait, I guess we're, we're, I'm 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 jumping ahead to the reappearance of Harry Mudd. Yeah, so I won't do that. Say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's save that for a little bit later. Um, uh, yeah. But yeah, and so what you think of Ash Tyler? I think he's a fascinating character. I mean, it's it's interesting. They brought in a completely new character halfway through this first season mm-hmm. uh, that is immediately one of the main characters. And has all of these, you know, all of these fan theories are popping up about, you know, is he wait, really wait, wait, wait. Save, Let's save the fan theories for a little bit later. <laughs> <laughs> well, he has all these, the potential for all of these things are being said about him. All of, you know, without mentioning what any of them are, that, you know, that they just invented a, a, a brand new character that suddenly one of the main characters, um, and that allowed them to, you know, have all these creative ideas about who he really is. And so there's so much mysterious, uh, hmm. about going on, on, on discovery in the captain and in, you know, a couple of the other crew members. Um, and it's great because you've absolutely no idea what's going to happen. And that never happens on Star Trek. <laughs> yeah. I feel like, I feel like that's another way that they're, they're showing us that this isn't the, the Star Trek that you're used to is because it's like, not only are we going to have a serialized story, but we're going to actually introduce new characters and we're going to lose some of the characters that you thought were going to be on the show the whole time. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> you know, people can actually die. We can have, uh, when we meet a new character, maybe they actually will join the crew. Whereas like, you know, <laughs> on previous episodes, previous series of Star Trek, it would always be like, Oh, Hey, that person seems like they'd be a great fit for the crew. But then by the end of the episode, it's like, Nope, that'll get pulled out from under us, you know, yep. and it's like, yeah, never, yeah. never happens. I mean, <laughs> seven of nine was like the one time that, that somebody who showed up mysteriously actually joins the crew. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, so like that's this, but this is, this is, a, this is definitely a weird introduction for Star Trek, certainly. And, uh, but yeah, no, I thought, I thought it worked also. Mm. 
See, Anthony, do you have anything you want to add? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I agree that uh, uh, that you know, like the introduction of of like Ash Tyler was like pretty. I mean, like it's just interesting because it was sort of a different you know um, approach to introducing a character for Star Trek. I did think that the within the episode, like how quickly it went from "Hey, here's a guy mm-hmm. um, in this prison." Oh, like, like we're going to escape together and we like trust each other to, okay, you should be like my head of security, which is getting a little mm-hmm. bit into the next episode. And I mean, I think there are reasons why Lorca does that, but it, it felt fairly rushed to me. Um, and so I, I, I think I, I was, I didn't, I didn't, it took me a couple of episodes to warm to the character. And, and frankly, I think until I started reading some, um, some of the fan theories about who Ash Tyler actually is, I, I, I wasn't totally on board with him. Mm-hmm. I do feel like the show is kind of rushed overall. Like maybe this is a show that would have benefited from, you know, like if these events had been spread over 10 episodes or 11 episodes or something that, that mm-hmm. maybe, um, yeah, like maybe some of these like scenes would have had a little bit more impact if they had been able to breathe a little bit more. Um, or if there had been a nice montage where, where Lorca and, and Tyler get to become, they show them becoming best friends, you know, and then, then he becomes head of security. I mean, like that would have, you know, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, uh, no, I mean, yeah, no, I, I agree that it definitely felt like it does happen fast. Um, all right. Yeah. So, so now we have an episode called Leafy, which is, uh, yeah, really a sort of more of a flashback episode where we learn about a little bit more about, um, the sort of the backstory with Michael Burnham and her adopted father, Sarek, who's also Spock's father. Um, and I, I thought this was kind of cool. There was the logic, uh, logic extremist Vulcan. I thought that was kind of an mm. interesting. Oh, right. Was that the suicide bomber? Yeah. 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 So he, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, so, so yeah. So the, the, the setup for the episode is that Sarek is going on a, um, you know, ship somewhere and uh, there's a basically yeah, like a suicide bomber attacks him, and the suicide bomber is a Vulcan who's a logic extremist, and he feels like Sarek has, you know, abandoned the true path of logic and must die. Uh, I don't know if that's ever appeared in Star Trek before, <laughs> but I, know, I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't remember ever uh, encountering that, but I, I did feel like I was, I was kind of wondering about the, uh, the logical. Uh, how, how logical it was the way that that suicide bomber actually approached his mission. It's like, it's like, oh, well, you're standing so far away from the guy and you're like talking, spending a lot of time talking while your goal is to kill him, right? Um, it's like, what, shouldn't he have like gone up closer to him, like hugged him or something? It's like, but of course, you know, it's like, then that would have guaranteed Sarek would die, but, uh, and we needed that, you know, we needed that, uh, excuse to let him, uh, survive, you know, for long enough for the plot to happen. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. That didn't seem like a logical way to approach that uh, particular mission. Well, that's the thing. If you actually had Vulcans who were always super logical, they would be so awesome. They would never fail at anything. So <laughs> that's why the whole show should be about them. But I, I digress. Um, but so how about Sarah? What did you think about this this backstory with Sarek and Michael Burnham? Um, I think it was great. I think it was quite believable because, I mean, I think that there, Star Trek has always flirted with the idea that there are limits to logic too that logic itself is something that has to be counterbalanced with other things in order for it to work properly you know i mean all of the tenuous arguments between you know the good of the many outweighs the good of the one but there are flaws with that and so i think that you know the relationship with sarek and also it really helps to patch any holes you know 
holes in air quotes that people have found with there being, you know, this idea that, well, if Spock had a sister, we would have known about it by now. And it's <laughs> like, well, actually, maybe not. I mean, it, to me, it's very plausible that Spock wouldn't mention her, um, for, both because she was fully human um, and because, you know, not his biological sister and because she was, you know, the first mutineer of Starfleet. Um, and the list goes on. And Sarek, we know to be a very proud man and a very proud Vulcan. And yet he was clearly uh, progressive within the Vulcan community of, you know, desperately trying to forge relationships with other, um, you know, other aliens and with humans and getting more flack for that. that I think that, that makes more sense than other series have brought up. You know, I mean, I, I think that it, it totally makes sense to me that Vulcans would be against it and that there would be some, you know, uh, some prejudice on, you know, within Vulcans against allowing humans uh, to study in their world and against allowing uh, humans to learn what they have learned. So to me, it, it you know, it made perfect sense and it really uh, it fits well with what we already know uh, about the character of Sarek through the movies and the show. Yeah. So just for listeners, so what we find out is that uh, Sarek had two kids, Spock and Michael, who were awesome candidates for the Vulcan Science Academy. But because one is fully human and one is half human, the Academy said they didn't want to accept both of them because they're kind of anti-human there's some anti-human prejudice going on. And so they said Sarek would have to pick one, and he picked Spock, his biological child. And then um, Spock elected to uh, join Starfleet and not go to the Vulcan Science Academy. And so Michael was left thinking that she had failed to live up to his standards when really this was a choice he had made and had kept secret from her all this time. And so there's a, some amount of resentment, obviously, when she finds mm -hmm. finds that out. Uh, Anthony, what'd you think of this episode? Yeah, I mean, I, I liked it, um, overall. And, and I thought particularly, um, the, the actor who plays Sarek, um, <laughs> I'm trying to remember his name, but, um, like the, the actor playing Sarek, I think is, is just like really sells those scenes, um, where he's, you know, like having to make that decision. And, and so I think dramatically it works really well. I mean, one thing I am curious about is if, if we're going to get more Sarek as the show goes on, um, is to what extent there, and I think I started to feel this a little bit even in this episode was, you know, to what extent, like, not showing Spock starts to feel kind of strange. Mm -hmm. and, and if they are going to cast, like, a young version of Spock at some point, or, or if it, or, if, you know, um, or if they're just going to have him sort of again be this sort of off screen presence. Um, but I think it worked well in this episode. It wasn't a problem. And I think that, that, I mean, probably, um, the relationship between Sarek and Michael, I mean, I, I think is one of the most compelling things on the show. Um, if anything, I, I kind of wish there, were, there was a little bit more of it. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I thought I liked the episode also. Um, what, so remind me, I, uh, like Michael connects to Sarek's like, uh, you know, consciousness or whatever from like really far away, right? Like, the, like she's not near where he is, right? Yeah, no, right. like, yeah. Does anyone remember somehow? I think like hadn't he um, like healed her when she was mortally wounded yeah. and now they have yeah. this deeper connection or something. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so like, I, like I, I, I get like, you know, Vulcans have like this whole sort of kind of weird psychic thing, like with the mind melds and all that. And like, you know, I, so I could kind of buy that, that they could have some kind of connection, you know, whatever, like I'm happy to go with it, but it's like, but, but it's like, she can do all, like she could have like this, this, 
you know, connection with him. And, like, even when, like, like, they're, like, star systems apart and everything, it's, like, it seemed, like, a little harder to believe um, that it's, like, such a weird, powerful, um, you know, connection that can span, like, light years um, or, or whatever. Like, John, and, and size matters least... not. Yeah. Right. No, I know. I oh, know. And, and I mean, hey, and, and hey, and hey, the mycelium, the mycelium network connects all things, apparently, you know, so like, I don't know, maybe, maybe they're piggybacking on that. But, yeah, the but, Katra you know, moves like... across the, the uh, mushroom network. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, it's like, yeah, so I mean, that, that's the only thing that really uh, sort of bugged me about the, the way that all that worked. Uh, like, at least if she had to go be in his presence, like, that would have made more sense. Um, especially since, like, I don't know that we've ever, I mean, again, this is more of a continuity thing, but I mean, like, I don't know that we've ever seen Vulcan uh, sort of psychic telepathy, whatever stuff happen uh, without any contact, right? Because, like, when they do the mind meld, they have to, you know, they have to connect to each they have to touch each other. Um at least, I mean, maybe that maybe that's just a focus, the energy or whatever. But I mean, just to, the, the idea that you could do it across light years seems bizarre to me. Uh, but you know, given that, like we said, that we have a ship that just you know teleports via a mushroom network, you, you know, I don't know much to really worry about the uh, telepathy too much. Well, they, they've said, you know, or the writers have said that as the season goes on, they'll be bringing it more and more into continuity, you know, so maybe mm-hmm. like everyone just forgets how to do the telepathic Vulcan thing and like everyone forgets mm-hmm. how to do the sport, you know, the sport drive gets technology gets lost somehow. And I don't know, it'll be interesting to see how that how that plays out. Well, I think also in the case of like him, like them speaking, you know, across this vast distance, I mean, I, I think like you actually see it twice because you see it first in the in that in the second episode when she's like, on like the blown up ship and he's able to, to talk to her. And I guess yeah. it is also this unique circumstance where it's not just that they've mind melted, but that in order to save her, he's given her, I guess, a piece of his Katra. So I don't know that that's right. something we've seen happen that often. I, mean, maybe, I guess maybe with Spock and McCoy, but like in general, it's not something we've seen before. So um, I think you, again, it, it feels like, you know, definitely the, the writers are sort of stretching what's allowed, but, but I don't think it's, it's completely, you know, mm. um, ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah, I accept Vulcan mysticism for what it is. I'm, <laughs> I'm perfectly happy with it. I, you know, it's just part of the willing suspension of disbelief for me. <laughs> All right, cool. So, Sarah, so you mentioned uh, that uh, Harry Mudd returns in episode yeah. seven. So, tell us about that. Uh, well, I love that episode, and apparently, I'm not alone. Like, this is you know mm-hmm. one of the favorite episodes of Discovery because it's. It totally pulls a Groundhog Day and, and Star Trek The Next Generation has pulled the Groundhog Day effect. And, you know, in the, in the Remember Me episode with, uh, Beverly Crusher and, you know, they are caught in a, uh, temporal loop and they're repeating the same half an hour over again. But they did really interesting different things with it. This, um, mm-hmm. you know, in this show, in part because they didn't tell the story through, uh, Stamets which usually they do. Usually they tell it, you know, through the perspective of the survivor or the, you know, the one person who knows what's going on and they didn't do that. Um, but it's just such a fun episode and the ending feels so much like classic Star Trek to me, you know, with this sort of almost, it's almost like the first campy moment that they had on, on discovery where they, you know, are, have, uh, are returning mud to, you know, his, his wife and <laughs> he clearly doesn't want to go. And I mean, it's, it's adorable and hilarious, but also feels very much like a standalone episode, even though it's also connected to this broader thing. Cause I know that part of 
you know, some people have actually complained about that. People like the episodic nature of Star Trek. They like the fact that they are these little self-contained stories. Um, but what I like about Discovery is that they do both. They're, they're telling a long story, but they also are choosing to tell these little stories in between. What, one issue I had with that episode was that it comes out toward the end, which I thought was there was sort of some clever twists and things, but it comes out toward the end that Michael Burnham is worth more money to the Klingons <laughs> than the ship is. And I felt like that came out of nowhere for me. I, I got the feeling that the Klingons didn't really care that much about Takuvma, that his faction had kind of, you know, fallen into disfavor and no one would really pay that much money to avenge his death or anything. Mm. Um, so I, I thought that if that was going to be as central to the plot as it turned out to be, that, sh that should have been established earlier. And mm -hmm. wasn't it did seem convenient. Right. Especially when the show has done a fair amount of work to establish how all the Klingons are kind of, you know, freaking out about this ship that's attacking them, but it hasn't done, you know, any work at all to sort of give us a sense of how the Klingons look at Burnham, you know, after the events of the first couple episodes. So uh, just real quick about the, the ending of this episode, you know, where, you know, Harry Mudd gets, uh, you know, returned to his, uh, you know, wife and, and whatever. Like, so that that's one thing that I suspect, like, maybe the uh, the Facebook commenter uh, was talking about in terms of, like, uh, treatment of gender roles and stuff. Like, like that, that, that whole ending did kind of make me raise my eyebrow and, like, give it a little side eye. Like, uh, I don't know if that's, like, the best note to end on there. Like, oh, oh, poor Harry Mudd. He has to be sentenced to a life of, uh, you know, in this relationship with this woman, you know? And it's like, um, like, I don't know. It just seemed like a, a very weirdly traditional sort of, uh, old school type of, uh, uh, thing where it's like oh like you know the worst thing i can imagine is having to be weighed down by this uh the, by this woman you know uh so i could see people being annoyed by that um but uh but in general like yeah i mean this this episode like i really love the time loop thing it's like i i thought it was the most it felt like the most like a star trek episode like um and actually uh the tng episode it reminded me of was cause and effect uh, because this episode also starts with the ship blowing up. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so, like, and, like, and so it's like, okay, it's like, so the ship blows up. It's like, hey, time loop episode. There we go. <laughs> um, you know, cause like, obviously, <laughs> but, uh, and cause and effect does the same thing. And cause and effect, uh, like blows up over and over, which I think this one also does. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you know, I, I thought it was really fun. Um, you know, I mean, there's, uh, yeah, like there's, there's these little quibbles that you have all like in, in a lot of these different episodes, like Dave, you mentioned, like with the Michael being worth more and everything. It's like, yeah, it's like, there's, there's a lot of little things like this that happened up through, throughout the show that, that like, you know, it's like it, like it, it stops me from fully loving the show, but I, I enjoy watching it. And, uh, those things like kind of bug me, but. It doesn't stop me from wanting to watch the show. Well, um, so well, and I thought the ending of this episode maybe was one of the few moments where I felt like this show maybe leans a little too heavily on lore that mm -hmm. new viewers, you know, I, I feel like the Harry Mud wife thing maybe comes a little bit out of nowhere if you're not already mm -hmm. familiar with that that character and his backstory. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. I mean, you know, he was talking about, uh, that he had lost his wife, you know, um, and I, I felt like they had established that pretty well. And then it turned, and then, and I think the way they played it in this show, in the, in this show that they, they were just like playing on that reversal that he was talking about, like how, like he, he, you know, wanted to get back to her desperately, but then really he did, he wanted to stay away from her, you know? Um, so like, I, you know, 
like I didn't remember any of his backstory as far as having a wife or anything like that. Like I I haven't watched uh you know the original episodes in in years, but um but Harry Mudd was the original person that brings Tribbles into the mix, right? Isn't he? No. No, he's that's not a, that's a different um sort of, you know, chubby white oh, Harry Mudd type character. Man. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Well, um anyway, I I I thought it was Mud, but yeah, cuz I, I I was just thinking cuz uh one of the other weird continuity things on the show is that um when we first meet Lorca, there's a Tribble on his desk. And I'm like, what the hell is that Tribble doing there? You know, because like, <laughs> obviously this is before the next before the original series and so they wouldn't have discovered Tribbles yet, but I mean that's like that's like one of the um I think it's like kind of a sign that maybe everything is not as it seems. Um, and then this episode also brings up something with that too. When, uh, Stamets sees Tilly, I think that's in this episode, right? Where he comes back, uh, he like wakes up from doing something with the spore driver or whatever and he sees Tilly and he says, Oh, what are you doing down here, Captain? You know, and, yeah. and like, and like it's, and then we learn that, like, he may be sort of popping into alternate universes or something, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, like, clearly it seems like he must have popped into some other um, alternate universe where Tilly was a captain. And um, so, you know, it's like, is this... Is, I mean, it stands to reason that this is not the main Star Trek universe that, that we would assume it would be. Like, it's not like, it's not that the one that we all know and love from next generation and all that. It's like, it might be an adjacent one. Um, uh, I, I saw this on Twitter, so I don't know if it's okay. Wait, wait, John, if this is a fan theory, let's save that for the fan theory section of the. Sure, sure, sure. I, I, I I, I know. I, 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 it's like, it's relevant to this to, to, to right now, but I, and I feel like it's something I would have come up on my, on my own, except that I did see it before I saw the last episode, so I'll restrain myself, but, um, but anyway, you know. It, it, you know, this episode does give you evidence to wonder, like, are we in the actual universe that we imagined, uh, at, that we would have assumed at the start? Uh, cause maybe not. And coupled with all the different, um, other continuity things, like, if they are going to pay attention to that stuff, then that also explains that stuff away. So. Well, one of the things in that vein that I'd wondered about was, like, I think from one of the episodes that, that I think maybe from Lethe was, um, the scene where they're using a holodeck to, like, mm. practice, you know, like, shooting Klingons. And, mm. like, I mean, my understanding was that holodecks aren't invented until the next generation timeline, so I that really threw me off. Mm-hmm. But no one well, else maybe they were developed on Discovery. <laughs> yeah, Discovery just developed all and the technology. And then it was classified for 100 years and <laughs> however long. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, because it's not, because they don't have it on Enterprise either, right? So, yeah. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, and there's a bunch of things, like, yeah, there, there's just a lot that we don't, you know, like like with the Tribbles, or I don't know if you guys noticed that um, in his uh, war, secret war room, um, Lorca has a Gorn um, skeleton. Oh, and, no, I didn't see that. And it's established very clearly in the original series that that, that Kirk's mm-hmm. um, encounter with the Gorn was like the first contact between humans mm-hmm. and that race. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of stuff that either it's just kind of like it's an in-joke and so don't take it too seriously for continuity or... Like, I don't right. know, um, or like, oh, this is, there's no, now different special effects. So now it's obviously it's going to be different or, yeah. you know, right. um, they're fucking with us. They know that everyone's <laughs> going to come out with all of these fan theories and they're just feeding it the same way that Game of Thrones <laughs> is like shooting multiple endings. It's yeah. great. I love it. <laughs> uh, actually, speaking of, uh, in jokes, like, I, I don't know, like, 
I, I, I hadn't noticed this, but I saw like an article talking about it. And I don't know if like, if you guys even want to hear this because it probably will, it will definitely annoy Dave, I would think. Should I, should I say it? I like where should this I is going. I... Wait, is this, a, is this a fan theory? No, it's not a fan theory. This is uh this is an end joke that, that's in the show. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, like an Easter egg, you mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, sure. Yeah, so uh, there's a there's a library at some point that they show, and uh, and, and like in the library, like the books are titled like episodes of, or they're titled after the episodes of like original series and like whatever episodes, and uh, so it's like instead of having like just actual books, they just have like the names of like Star Trek, other Star Trek episodes. Yeah, and so, like, the so, like city I saw that, and I was forever, just or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I was just like, ugh. That's so stupid. Like I, I hate, I hate when they do stuff like that. Like, um, and it's like, what's the point of it? Like, like, yeah, we're like, we're the all point of it Star is Trek that show. we're now talking about it, which is exactly <laughs> what they want us to do. <laughs> Don't they want us to talk about how awesome the, the 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 new the new show is though? Like, instead of like, uh, like what's with that weird Easter egg? You know. But anyway, I don't know. Yeah, but I, I agree with you that that that's just like that's obviously just a Easter egg and is not. I hope to God going to have some sort of universe, <laughs> oh uh, my God. you know, relevance or something. So yeah, right, who right. knows about this Tribble or the Gorn or whatever else? Um, but okay, but before and I don't want to come back to the the other stuff. But yeah. first, let's let's cover these last two episodes. So in the last two episodes, um, the crew, like three characters, Michael, Ash, mm. and Saru, beam down to a planet where it's like the whole planet is one organism. Uh, in order to access a transmitter and Saru kind of goes, he gets kind of like infused with the like magic alien, um, like fireflies or whatever of this planet (laughs) and starts acting very strangely. And, um, and then we find out that he, uh, this is, and this is kind of a nice twist. I thought was that he's just been afraid his whole life. And this is the first time that he isn't afraid. And he's acting strangely because he's not afraid for the first time in his life. And he doesn't want to lose that feeling. I thought that was pretty cool. I I actually thought the whole episode really should have been about that. I thought that was a really interesting Mm -hmm. idea. Um, And then they, and then these peaceful aliens, we find out at the end have sent a signal to the Klingons to come here because they want to want everyone to work it all out or whatever, Mm -hmm. uh, which leads into our big confrontation in episode nine. So, uh, how about Anthony? What do you think of these uh, these last two episodes? Um, I thought they were probably from like a plotting or like just like a basic plausibility perspective. I, I felt like they they maybe suffered the most because it just seemed like they were there were a lot of things that happened because the writers wanted them to happen, and rather mm-hmm. than feeling like they sort of arose organically. Um, I thought like so for example like like um, Saru like sort of uh, you know acting so differently, and then in fact like actively you know sabotaging the 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 mission. I mean, I, again, I, it's not that you can't do that, but I just felt like they didn't spend the time necessary to, like, really justify it. Um, and then similarly, I think in the finale where, like, they have this plan which involves, like, sneaking onto the Klingon ship and, like, sneaking onto the bridge and, like, hiding mm-hmm. on the bridge and, like, you know, like, putting this, tran- like, you know, transmitter on the bridge and, like, all of that, I mean, I guess I can, but no one seems to, like, bring up the fact that, like, this is going to be, like, the idea of like having like a, a Starfleet crew member like hiding on the bridge of, of a Klingon ship is is a pretty tough like task, even like a giant ornate bridge like like we see here. Um, and I think there were like a few other moments like that where it just felt like the writing was a little bit sloppy. 
but it was mm-hmm. entertaining enough that I went along with it. Um, I think particularly in the final episode, but, but, um, but I, I, I wish, it, you know, things had been sort of dealt with a little bit more, you know, fully and carefully. Uh, Sarah, what'd you think? About the last the... two episodes. I thought they were great. I mean, I, um, I am also sort of just not, I, you know, little things like that don't bother me. And I, I, I feel like, um, a lot of Star Trek fans are talking about that kind of thing online. And it's exactly, it's like the, the Game of Thrones, how far or how fast can a raven fly thing all over again. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but, you know, to me, the, the more important thing is, you know, it was an outstanding episode, especially the last episode. And it really sealed the deal for me in terms of being excited about this show and excited about the fact that we have absolutely no idea what they're going to do with it. You know, is it a mirror universe? Is, you know, is Lorca, how, what is the mix of, of Captain Lorca in terms of good and bad? And, you know, I love the fact that we have absolutely no idea and we, um, you know, we just know that he's sort of this unreliable character. And, you know, there's a lot of mystery about it. Um, and I think it's just a, a, a really wonderful way to, to end it, you know, for two months or however long it's going to be until we get the next batch, uh, the, you know, second half of, of the first season. Uh, John, what'd you think of the last two episodes? Uh, yeah, I mean, I thought I liked them well enough. I, I mean, I, I, I'm more, uh, with Anthony as far as, uh, the various, uh, issues I had with it. And, and I, I totally like what you were describing episode eight. Uh, it, it's like, I think the way you were describing it, Dave, was basically like what a, a next generation episode version of that plot would have been. And like, I, I would have liked to see that also. But, um, I mean, I thought, I thought what we got though was pretty good. Uh, I felt like there was a bit, there was like a missing transition from episode seven to episode eight. Like, like, I don't know, like, it just felt like kind of sudden, like, wait, wait, we're at this, like, like, all of a sudden we're at this, at this peaceful alien planet, you know, and, uh, and, and, and it's like really important. And I don't know, I felt like there was a missing puzzle piece there between those two episodes, um, where it's like, almost like, uh, they're like, oh, hey, we gotta, we gotta get this two part, uh, uh, you know, mid-season finale going, so let's just get this thing into gear. And um, I felt like the yeah, there was like a uh, a transitory uh episode missing or something to to get us to this next episode to, to get to guess episode eight. But um, but I mean, it was it was cool to see Saru like um, uh, you know, being kind of a badass or like to show what like his his species is capable of uh when uh you know w- when when they need to you know be active and stuff like, uh, like, you know, when he's trying to stop, uh, Michael and he's trying to uh, subvert the mission and all that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it was all kind of cool and it, and I, I like, I like that they, that this peaceful, this peaceful race ends up actually, uh, bringing about this huge confrontation, you know, in an effort to try to make things nice. Um, but, uh, yeah. And then, and then in the final episode with the, you know, all the Klingon battle stuff is like, ah, I don't know. It was okay. I mean, the the whole like series of jumps thing it was like eh, it was kind of cool but i don't know i didn't really i didn't really i didn't really follow it like you know i didn't really follow like the logic of it or whatever and um one thing that just never occurred to me really with star trek uh, the way they talk about the klingon cloaking device though is like in the way they describe it in this episode they're talk they keep talking about the sensors and i'm like well but could you just like look out a window and see it though like is it is the is the cloaking device just hiding the ship from sensors and like you could actually just visually see it still um, no, because I thought it's it was like saying it was like bending the waves of light around. I guess right. I don't know what light. Yeah, I mean, you would think so. I mean, because uh, uh, 
we've always seen it that way. That's always how it's portrayed. Uh, and maybe, maybe there was just something about the way they were describing it in this episode that made me stop and wonder, like, well, could you just see it with your eyes though? Um, but, um, but yeah, I don't know. Like the whole, the whole doing the multiple jumps thing in order to triangulate, you know, uh, their position so that you could shoot them even when they're cloaked. Like, I don't know. Whatever. It seemed fine, I guess. I, 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 if you don't pay too much attention to it, it made, it made enough sense, I guess. But, um, you know, it was entertaining. Yeah, so I, I guess I'm, I'm more with you and Anthony that, um, you know, I've been more into the show when it started feeling to me more like Star Trek, kind of in the middle of the, of this run of episodes. Mm -hmm. And then the last two were a little bit of a letdown to me. It started feeling a little bit like Stargate y to me. Um, mm -hmm. but then I started, uh, reading some fan theories. And I was like, oh, hey, this is actually really interesting. This had, this kind of stuff had not occurred to me. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, so let's get into these fan – so, like, I know people have been just chomping at the bits and <laughs> going to get into fan theories. So um, th I think, John, you were the first one to start talking about – prematurely yeah. tar start talking about fan theories. So why don't you uh, take, it, take it away here? Well, I mean, I only have the one. I, I thought I thought I, I'm curious to hear what the theories about Tyler are also. But um, the one that I had read before I got to the final episodes was that maybe that we're in a in the Dark Mirror universe, uh, which totally makes sense. I mean, in everything that we've seen so far, like with uh, how gritty everything is and uh, how um, how warlike the Federation is at this stage. Uh, how there's this major technology like the spore drive that we've never heard of, um, you know. The other, the other things that we've meant, the other continuity things that we've mentioned that, like, you know, don't make sense, uh, in the, in the typical continuity. Um, so yeah, I thought that was really interesting. Um, and, uh, and given that as we get toward the end of the season, you know, Stamets indicates that he is seeing multiple, you know, into other universes, uh, it would stand to reason that this might be the Dark Mirror universe or at least, you know, some other one. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So the arguments against this being the, Okay, and also I guess just for like casual Star Trek fans, is that there's this thing called the Dark Mirror Universe where there's a evil version of every character, or at least a less good version of every character, uh, which is like a parallel universe. But yes, but the thing is that in the Dark Mirror Universe that we've seen in previous Star Treks, the Federation isn't called the Federation; it's called the Empire, mm -hmm. and their mm -hmm. insignia is not the little triangle thing, but it's right. a Earth with a sword through it. So well. Well, right, but this is how many years before Next Generation, though, right? Like, because the, I mean, do we ever see them in the original series? I can't remember. Yeah. Oh, we do. Okay. Yeah, you see and them they, in the one they episode. Have a, oh, okay. Because there's, right. cause well, remember, yeah, there's this... the goateed uh, Spock. Oh yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, the and evil, yeah, this is with only the evil goatee. <laughs> right, right, of course, yeah, and this is only like what ten years or something before the original series, so it wouldn't be like enough time really for them to make it make make themselves into an empire. Yeah, to change all their uniforms and everything. Next time. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, and they got, they, their uniforms are really on point in, on Discovery. So, like, it would be a real shame to, to change. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so, Anthony, what do you think about this mirror universe theory? Um, I, I mean, I, I like the idea that it may be some sort of alternate universe, but it, it doesn't match with my perception of what the mirror universe, I mean, particularly the, the original series mirror universe, like, it just seems so much worse than anything we see in, see in Discovery mm -hmm. that, like, um, I, I don't quite buy it yet. I mean, I'm, I'm you know, I, I don't know, but, I, you know, and, and if it happens, like, I, that wouldn't totally throw me, but I'm skeptical. I mean, we could be in some other universe that's not mm -hmm. the prime right. universe and is just a little, it's like halfway between mm -hmm. the prime universe and the mirror universe or something like that. Right. You know, I think I think that's definitely true. 
Um, whether or not it's the Dark Mirror one, I don't know. I, I, I'm less likely to believe that it would be given that you just reminded me that, that there was the original series one. I was thinking that it only showed up in Next Generation. Cause I was thinking like, oh, well, like there's enough time for between now and Next Generation that, you know, it could become actually what we see in Next Generation, even though it's not quite the same. Well, um, but yeah. I thought it doesn't show up in Next Generation. The Mirror Universe, like a lot of people wanted it to show up in Next Generation. I think it's original series in Deep Space Nine. Oh, not until Deep Space Nine. Okay. Yeah. I think. Uh, may, I, I must have been thinking of like the um, the the yesterday's Enterprise universe. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, so, there are like, Star Trek Next Generation novels that are set in the Mirror Universe. So I don't know if you ever right, read right, yeah. right, right, right. Um, but yeah, but so 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 yeah, that seems like maybe a vague possibility that the whole show is doing one giant fake out and we're not in the prime universe at all. But then another possibility, Sarah, that you alluded to is that Captain Lorca is from the mirror universe. You want to talk about that? Ah. Um, I didn't Well, actually. See, I was I was I the one I had brought up was the one about um about Ash. You know, being potentially oh. a Klingon. Oh, okay. Sorry, I thought you said. Oh, the... I <laughs> haven't heard the one about about uh, Lorca being from the Mirror Universe, but that does make sense because he is a mysterious motherfucker. So that would okay, make a yeah, whole well, okay, lot so, of sense. Uh, okay, sorry, I thought you I thought you alluded to it, but no. So this is actually <laughs> this is really really convincing to me. Um, <laughs> yeah. So what we know about Lorca is that years before he was in some giant space battle where his entire crew died and he was the only survivor. So yeah. who's to know what happens around that time, right? Mm-hmm. Then when um, he sleeps with the Admiral, she sees that he has all these scars on his back where she's like, where did all these scars come from? You know, you never had these before. And then when he, um, you know, is threatening her with the phaser, she says, you are not the man I knew which mm-hmm. maybe is, uh, you know, more more true than she <laughs> realizes. And also, mm-hmm. if you notice, if you watch closely during the scene where they're reminiscing, she's reminiscing and he's kind of like nodding along, but he never says anything about things ah. that they did together. Mm-hmm. But then mm-hmm. the big thing is in the last episode, right before they end up in the weird... Okay, so in the last episode, um, they're going to use this board um, drive to jump one last time. And right before they do it, right. Lorca says, let's go home. And punches some coordinates into his console by his chair. And ah. and if you freeze frame it <laughs> and look hmm. at that screen, it says something like Lorca override coordinates unknown destination. Oh, really? So he's reprogramming the computer to make that jump mm-hmm. right after he said, let's go home. So the heavy implication right. is wherever they've ended up at the mm-hmm. end of that episode is home to him. Ah, yeah, no, I mean, because it seemed clear that he definitely took them into this different place that they ended up, because, uh, you know, he does something. It's like, I, I I didn't see, I didn't follow everything that was on the screen, but, you know, it's like he clearly reprograms it to go go somewhere else than where they thought they were going. But, yeah, that's really interesting. So, I don't know, what do you guys think? So, Sarah, now that I've blown your mind <laughs> with those dark mirror Lorca theory, what do you think about that? I think it's totally the most plausible thing that I've heard because I feel like the mirror universe has something to do with it. And, mm-hmm. you know, the idea that he's the only one that knows about it, uh, is, is, you know, it makes a lot of things fall into place. And yeah, he does seem, he does seem a little weird when Stamets is telling him about the, um, you know, about the other universes or whatever, like when he, when they were, were looking at that sort of map, like he does kind of, kind of a, 
Like, I don't know. Like, in retrospect, it's like, yeah, he seems, like, kind of shady there. Right. Although he always seems slightly, he's, like, well, the wheel yeah. It's because he's from yeah, the yeah. Dark Mirror universe. He's permanently <laughs> shady. Right. <laughs> Actually, speaking of him, like, uh, is he is he doing an accent or something? Like, what is what is he doing? Like, it's like it's sometimes like kind of a sort of southern Texas accent or something, but then most of the time he just forgets about it. It's like, what what is he doing with that? Did anyone else does that does that bug anyone else? Well, he's uh, British, isn't he? So he's suppressing he? his own right. accent. Oh, okay. Right. I had no idea he was. I've never heard him speak British. I've only heard him speak with American accent. Yeah, no, no. His natural um, accent is much different than in this show. Mm. Um, but that's actually – this is another crazy fan theory that I heard. And this one, <laughs> I, think, I think this is a little bit more tenuous, although not impossible. But the um, this theory is that the Discovery is part of or some sort of progenitor to um, Section 13, um, ah. which is the kind of like black op, Starfleet black ops. And um, support for this – is that um, the discoveries, um, you know, number on the um, prow of the ship, whatever, ends with 13. Mm. And uh, that when um, Michael Burnham first comes aboard, like lots of people are kind of, they, you know, they, wear, they have these sort of like black flak jacket type vests that they wear and Section 13 mm-hmm. people dress in black. But then the, um, the, the Section 13 guy we saw in um, Deep Space Nine, um, has a particular way of speaking, and the suggestion is that Lorca talks very much in that mm-hmm. same way. Um, mm-hmm. So that one's a little bit more of a stretch, but it just reminds me of it when you were when you were talking about his accent. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I don't know how you guys feel about that, but so uh, so Sarah, what? <laughs> so tell us about uh, Ash being Ash Tyler being a Cleon. Um. Well. I don't, I don't think it's plausible personally. I do think what's highly plausible is that he's been brainwashed and programmed. Um, mm. you know, that's certainly something that even Star Trek episodes have dealt before, uh, dealt with before. But, you know, having the trauma that happened to him was all part of his programming to either be, you know, some kind of spy or, um, to, um, be doing something with the Klingons and not even being aware of it, which I think is, is the most plausible thing. Um, so, you know, a couple of people have said, you know, that he's actually the same character as, um, I can't remember the names, the Locke. two Klingons that go back to the, um, the Shenzo ship. Um, oh. The, yeah, yeah, so but, it's Vok, who's the pale yeah. Klingon, and Laurel is the female Klingon. Yes. Yeah, so somebody said that we haven't seen them in a while, and that mm. one of them is, um, and the, even suggesting that uh, it's the same actor who's playing them, and that mm. they have purposefully, um, you know, sort of withheld that information um, by not revealing the name of the actual actor or making up a name or something like that. Mm-hmm. But to me, that just seems preposterous because there's so many things that they would have to resolve to actually make it plausible that, um, that he's a Klingon. Um, but I, I do think it's very plausible, this sort of subplot of him having PTSD and, right. you know, the whole, all of the trauma that he endured. And I, I actually also really want to take this moment to say, I love what they're doing with that um, in terms of exploring 
trauma and rape from that angle. Um, and, and the fact that Ash is open and vulnerable, um, with Michael and talks about it, uh, is wonderful to see because, you know, I think in a lot of science fiction, they touch on stuff like that, but then they have this sort of, you know, they put the uniform back on and, you know, they keep it to themselves and, mm-hmm. <laughs> or they talk to the ship's counselor about it. But, you know, you don't really see this stuff come out in their day to day lives. And it's really nice that they're dealing with that realistically and focusing on, on, you know, despite the fact that I agree with David, the show does move at a very rapid pace. I love the fact that character development is not the thing that's suffering uh, mm-hmm. as a result of that. Uh, well, wouldn't um, wouldn't wouldn't the the PTSD flashbacks that we see of Tyler uh, basically discount the the theory that he might be actually Klingon? Okay, wait. Like it doesn't just. Dis- okay, wait. What? Let me let me say what what's in support of the the Vok uh-huh. theory. Okay, okay, so so there's this pale um, Klingon named Vok who we see in the first couple episodes, and the last time we see him, he's talking to Laurel. They've yeah, they've met up on the derelict now derelict Shenzo. And um, she says something like, "It's been, again, it's been a long time since I watched it, but she says something like, you, you have to go back to the Klingon mothers or something like that. And he says, like, what do I have to give up or something? And she says, everything. Yeah. And then that's the last we see of him. And she's also, in a previous conversation, said that her house is the house known for, like, deceit and spying and disguise mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And it is established, like in other Star, your know, previous Star Trek iterations, that you can, you know, mm-hmm. remake one like humans to look like Klingons or whatever, right? Right. Um, right. And then, um, yeah. So then this this guy Ash Tyler shows up, and he's like this awesome soldier. He's like better than Lorca, and so maybe it's because he's like a Klingon warrior. <laughs> and um, and then like right in the last. Uh, episode there's a scene you know they've they have Laurel in their um prison on the discovery and Ash mm-hmm. kind of stumbles into the room and says what have you done to me and she says I would never let them hurt you and then he kind of stumbles out and mm-hmm. so I think it's pretty reasonable to assume that somehow yeah that he's either Vok having been remade or they've like somehow like projected Vok into his consciousness and could take over at some points in the future or like take over at some moments or something like that mm. um so that might be one way to explain the the flashbacks is that he is mm-hmm. ash tyler but Vok is like haunting his mind mm. yeah it would actually be interesting to rewatch those flashbacks and with that in mind thinking about the this theory and see if you can glean anything from it i mean i, I guess because i i'd read the that theory before i saw that that final episode and and i think I don't think it definitively clinched it, but I think like it didn't, the, the flashbacks to me, like could, it could also be explained as essentially that when they remade him, they, they basically sort of, mm-hmm. you know, gave him fake memories so that he, to get mm-hmm. for this, that, that backed up this cover story, but that, you know, the one that when he basically keeps flashing back to it, you know, one interpretation is that it is, you know, this PTSD, the other interpretation it mm-hmm. would be that it's, you know, that basically he's like starting to like, you know, question this sort of cover that's been given mm-hmm. to him and that, that he's, mm-hmm. that it, you know, that it's these false memories. He's like going over and over again because they're actually not real. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's that's pretty convincing. Um, and actually, that would uh, that would make me feel a little bit better about um, the way he's sort of portrayed as having this PTSD experience. Where I'm like, I'm not sure that was really convincing as like like that being how people experience PTSD. So if it wasn't actually that, then actually that's that makes it better. Uh, but yeah, I, I actually really like that theory. If that that would be cool if that's true. Yeah, so I kind of had that same reaction, John. Is that once, as I said, like by the end of the by the end of episode nine, I was kind of like, yeah, this is all right. But then, like, I was like, oh, if they're actually doing some of these things, that makes mm-hmm. me more interested to to watch it. Because yeah, because I mean, I was sort of like um, lukewarm on the. It's like you know when Star Trek Discovery returns, mm-hmm. when you boldly go too far, and then it's like it it was like Event Horizon <laughs> kind of, and I was like, eh, this uh-huh. is even getting more away from Star Trek even <laughs> that I. Uh, wanted but um but yeah so i don't know if it's just like if but if there's some cool twists like that that might uh that mm-hmm. might keep me interested yeah that i mean that this discussion has actually made me want to rewatch everything like just hearing like the different fan theories and stuff because it's like now oh now i actually want to see uh if if that if that stuff seems legit um but, uh, but I mean, just speaking about the, the, the show overall, uh, like you were just, you were just saying, it was like, you know, feeling sort of like kind of meh. Uh, uh, but, um, like one of the commenters, uh, was sort of brought up a good point that, like, which I agree with is that, like, although, uh, I don't real I don't like love the show like a hundred percent, if you compare it to like the first season of other Star Trek shows, like, yeah, I mean, it's really, really good in comparison because most of the other first seasons of Star Trek shows are, are haven't been great. Um, like, uh, you know, there's always like uh, a few episodes that are really great. Like, I mean, the first episode of Deep Space Nine is actually phenomenal. Like it's a two hour pilot and it's like one of the best, like, it's like one of the best, like movies of science fiction, like movie length things, uh, of science fiction that I've, that I've ever seen really. It's like, it's a really great science fiction just story. Um, and so that's great. But then the overall, the first season is like, it's pretty good, but you know, it's not, not fantastic. And, um, so if you compare Discovery to any of those, it's like, well, it's actually, yeah, it's, it holds up really well. Yeah, I would agree with that. And and I think that also, like, it, it feels like, I mean, that they're definitely still figuring some of this stuff out, but like, that on a few key things in terms of just like, I like how they're trying, I don't think they completely succeed, but I like how they're trying to keep the core kind of Star Trek-like, but also, like, move into new areas. And, I mean, also mm-hmm. the the balance that they have between the standalone episodes and the overall narrative I really like. So there's enough things here that, that makes me feel like this is, like, a really promising start. Yeah, and as John was pointing out, we, we don't even know really anything about half the bridge crew, like the, mm-hmm. the robot woman or the woman with the thing on her brow and stuff like that. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of room for... for further development you know the the robot woman's like uh, she's like really bugging me i'm like how can there be an android on their bridge and you never like tell us anything about her like i i really want to know what her deal is like it's like she occasionally speaks and she's always in the background and i'm like that's cool but like seriously like let us like who the hell is that like i want to know i refer uh, to her as the daft punk woman <laughs> just, so, just so we're clear on that Right, right. 
Yeah, no, she looks really cool though, and like I, I'm, I'm just really curious about her because it's like, I mean, that's another one of those continuity things, you know? Because it's like, well, Data is the first android that we knew of in Star Trek, uh, and and he was unique. I mean, except, well, I mean, except for lore, but I mean, like they, like nobody ever figured out how to actually make androids like on, on any kind of mass level um, or mass scale, and, and so like I'm really curious, like what her deal is? Is she made by humans? Is she like, what, what's her deal? I want to know. Well, I think that's one of the things that makes the show great to me. I mean, I, I think that it's given us this very rich tapestry, and it's only shown us a couple of the threads they're in. And it's, you know, I think that it's pretty clear that they're going to explore more of that stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And it, I would prefer that they set it up in the beginning and make us curious and make us ask so that when they do reveal it, you know, it will feel like kind of a, uh, you know, a, a reward for having waited for it. But I mean, even if not, they've really given this a very rich sense of its own history. And a lot of shows, I think, don't do that. And it, it, it feels very paper thin. And, you know, you're supposed to only focus on, you know, whatever the central point of the story is. So the fact that there's that, all of that, you know, exterior, extraneous stuff set up that they may or may not delve into is, you know, proof that it's it's doing a good job. I guess all this just sort of raises the issue of, is there a compelling reason for this show to be set 10 years before the original series <laughs> rather than after Voyager and mm-hmm. Deep Space Nine? Like, I think we're going to find out. Yeah, I mean, but just in a lot of ways, it would be more, you know, like there, there's this new spore drive that no one ever knew about mm-hmm. before. You know, they've got tribbles and everything. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, it just seems like, I don't know. Yeah, that there must, you would think there must be some really compelling reason for them to have set it where they have because it creates so many issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I suspect we're going to find out, like, uh, like Sarah was saying, uh, but I, I think it's, connected directly to this whole uh other realities thing uh and and maybe some of these theories like like Lorca being from you know the dark mirror universe or whatever like i i feel like all of those threads do suggest putting it in this in this time period where there are going to be these um inconsistencies with what we know from previous star treks and it, and it is sort of puts you in a situation where it allows the writers to play with some of those things that we think we know, but then we don't actually know. Um, so I don't know. We'll see. I, I mean, they, they better make it, they better make it worthwhile. Like, <laughs> and it's not just some random choice to, to set it at this time period, especially after like everyone was like, why the heck did they make Enterprise be a prequel? Like, you know, um, and, and, and they had written themselves into a box with that show. Um, yeah, if they end up making it like Lost, I will cry. <laughs> I will weep. <laughs> well, just don't let don't let Damon Lindelof get anywhere near yeah. it, and uh, we'll be all right. I actually never heard anyone mention this before, but probably people have. But perhaps the the thing with um, Lorca's eyes not being able to see light is related to him being from. I don't know. Maybe he's from like a universe where there's not there's like it's just dark everywhere, and so. You know, he's kind of adapted to the darkness. I don't know. That's just the thought I had. I like it. <laughs> yeah, <it's, laughs> like, I, I every, like everyone in that universe is going to have the dark story. Yeah, kind of yeah. Thing. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, well, that would be one way for, uh, to, uh, like, you know, to have like a sort of a secret reveal where it's like somebody, somebody 
walks up on somebody and unawares and like catches them put uh doing some kind of squirty thing in their eye like Lorca does and be like, aha, <laughs> you're one of them, you know. Uh, so yeah, I, I don't know. Now that you say that, I, I suspect that that actually will come into play like that in in, in some respect. I, I guess the one thing I worry about with that is is that I feel like because I, I find Lorca to be a fairly compelling character because of how, um, you know, morally gray he is in some ways. Like, I, I, I hope that if, if he is from this, like, from some other universe or from the mirror universe, like, that isn't necessarily supposed to just sort of stand in for, like, further developing his character. If it's just like, okay, well, that explains everything because he's from the mirror universe and it's, as opposed to delving into some of that complexity. Um you know, and, 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 and sort of treating that as a way to sort of explain things away. Um, I, I hope that's not the direction they go in. Yep. Uh, let's see. I'm just looking over our listener comments, see if there's anything else we, we really ought to mention here. I do. I, I just really want to read this comment we got from uh, Andrew Willett, uh, who's a friend of mine. Sarah, you were pointing out how great this comment is. But, but yeah. Andrew is gay. And he says, um, talk, he says, when the engineer said to the doctor, I love you, mm-hmm. I was struck down by ugly crying right there in my living room. I never <laughs> thought it would mean so much to me, but it does. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Andrew, for that comment. I, I just, yeah I, yeah, I think that 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 is like one of the things that the show does really well is, you know, right. is this diversity in these characters. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I saw... Um... Uh, someone, uh, someone retweeted, uh, or was replying to somebody on Twitter the other day, and it was like some guy who was, uh, pointing to the moment when they first kissed or something. Uh, I can't remember. It was something, it was something about, um, Stamets and his husband, uh, you know, interacting. Um, and, and the guy was like, oh, that's where, that's where the show lost me or whatever. And, you know, obviously complaining because it has these gay characters on there. And I'm like, how can anyone watch Star Trek and like think that? Like, you know, it's like, I, I, I don't, I don't understand it. It's like, start, how, how, like, how, how do you reconcile everything else that's in Star Trek with like hating somebody else because they're different? You know, or, or, you know, it's like, it just doesn't, doesn't compute. The whole backlash. I mean, one of the things that, I mean, 2017 and 2016 have been disappointing for a number of reasons. But, hmm. you know, one of them is that I can no longer trust that Star Trek fans are who I thought they were for hmm. the majority hmm. of my life, you know, and I don't know whether it's just that we only see that the online backlash because the people who are angriest and have, you know, this sort of uh, vitriolic reaction are the ones who are, are being loudest about it and the ones who are commenting on the forums and you know, I'm in a couple of, of Star Trek forums on Facebook, and one guy even thought, even, you know, mentioned, you know, maybe these are the Russians, and they've, they've, hmm. they've gone on from, from meddling in our elections to meddling in our Star Trek forums, no, because they want us to think far. that Star Trek is, you know, it, it was funny, but it, it's, it is sort of like baffling for, you know, quote-unquote true Star Trek fans, which I would never mm-hmm. actually use that term in any other context, like true fans, the whole idea of it, mm-hmm. but if there is anything that Star Trek is consistent for, it is this very utopian, very progressive future. And to, to not get that, I just, it, it breaks my brain. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's something that, I mean, especially if you watch the original series, I mean, it's something that is, it aspires to, but is, you know, still very much a product of its time, but like to not understand that that's what they were trying to do seems so strange. Um, and I yeah. mean, a related thing that, happened, that I saw was when I posted like a review 
a positive review of like the first two episodes. Like a lot of people were just really still really furious about the um, the thing where the cast, you know, they they took a, they posted a photo where they all sort of took a knee in in solidarity with like the NFL players. Yeah. And oh. people were just like, I can't believe you're trying to like bring politics into Star Trek. <laughs> and it was just very, you know, it's like, look, if you disagree with that, a, I mean, you're wrong there too. But at least that is a position you can take. But if you're like. Star Trek should not be political. That is a completely invalid and dumb position. Right. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, yeah. So, so I guess I mean I don't know what the long term plan for this show is. It has been, I guess we should say, renewed for a second season. So they have some, you know, so yeah. there will be a bunch more episodes to come. But I mean, I, I wonder if it's possible that the first season will be like the Klingon War, and then in season mm-hmm. two that'll be resolved, and it'll it will move into more of the you know more utopian, progressive kind of. Um, you know, enlightened, peaceful, compromise kinds of, um, you know, aspects of Star Trek, which I think we mm-hmm. could really use, you know. Yeah. Oh, hey, so before we go, can I complain about CBS All Access a little bit? <laughs> <laughs> yes. No. <laughs> uh, you know, so, like, you know, I mean, obviously, like, there's been a lot of people complaining this here and there about, you know, having to subscribe to the service, whatever. Okay, but whatever. If we look aside from that, like, just looking at it as a service, like, it was so frustrating to get everything set up and, and just working correctly. Like, I mean, like, I, I, I tried it on, on Chromecast and, and it kept, like, not working correctly on my TV. And then I, uh, got the app on my Xbox One and I was watching it on there. And then it's like, uh, and it would, like, sort of randomly, uh, forget which episodes I'd watched and which ones I hadn't watched yet. And I'm like, come on, guys. This is, like, very basic functionality of a, of a streaming service. Um, but then also, and, like, I have the, I have the lowest level subscription, you know, that has the most commercials. Um, and it's like, it crashed several times, like, Dirt while it was running one of the commercials and I had to like reload the whole episode and then like fast forward back to where I was or, or no, well, maybe no, I think I can't remember if I had to fast forward if it remembered, but anyway, I had to reload the episode cause it crashed. Um, and then, uh, and then also I kind of resent that they don't put the credits at the end of the episode. They make you watch one more commercial break before they let <laughs> you know that, Oh yep. Nope. The episode's over. It's okay. You can turn it off now. Oh, it's like, they don't even show the executive producer credit, which is usually what they would do before they go to commercial. But they're like, nope, we got to get this one more commercial break in on, uh, uh, you know, just for any of you complete this who want to make sure that this episode is definitely over. Um, and or if you want to watch the coming attractions, but yeah, it's uh, worth the anyway. extra few bucks to not have to deal with that. Like it, their app still is, is buggy. And I think that mm-hmm. maybe, you know, they did this as an experiment and they didn't necessarily put the money into the app that they did into the show. But, uh, you know, it, it, and they're learning, like they acknowledged that they, there was like one week where everybody had tech problems and, you know, ever, it was crashing for everybody, but we have the commercial free version through Apple TV and it works, you know, 90% of the time, but it definitely is among the buggier apps that I've had through Apple TV. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd be more, I'd be more sympathetic if it was like a little, a little startup company or something. It's like CBS. It's like a huge, huge corporation. Like, come on, guys. Well, but I, I mean, I think the thing is that you can, I mean, I, I just watched this all on my laptop. I didn't have any problems and I paid for the commercial free thing, which I it was $10 or $12 a month or something. And you could just wait until the whole season one is done and just pay $12 or whatever and watch the whole thing and then cancel it, I guess. I mean, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I feel like if you don't want to pay for Star, for Star Trek, man. <laughs> well, well, but but th- that's the thing is I feel like you know like it's it costs money to produce 
like science fiction shows, yeah. spaceships and aliens and mm-hmm. stuff. And, you know, I know it's a pain. You're like, oh, I already subscribed to Netflix and like, yeah. Hulu and whatever. But, you know, I just feel like, you know, you you kind of get what you pay for at some level. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this show isn't going to, you know, if, if people aren't paying for stuff like this, it's not going to exist, you know? Yeah. It, mm-hmm. it drives me crazy. In all the Star Trek groups, the months leading up to Discovery, there were so many people who were complaining about having to pay for television. And I'm like, I'm sorry that apparently you went to bed last night in 1989, but this is not how this works anymore. We don't. And thank God, I much prefer the ability to watch every show that I watch without any commercials at all. You know, and I, I love the fact that we can also pick and choose what we want to support and what we want to pay for. I mean, you know, even 10 years ago, if you wanted to watch something on HBO, you had to get 300 channels that you don't want. And so the fact that we can have all of this a la carte is miraculous and people should be, you know, just bending over backwards to pay money for good science fiction because it's, it deserves it. It's worth it. Yeah. I, I do wish that I could subscribe and, but just like tell CBS, like, no, I'm this, I'm paying all this for Star Trek. Like put all of this money that I'm giving you, like uh, put that on the Star Trek ledger. Cause that's the only reason I'm subscribing to this shit. Don't put, don't, don't you dare give any of it to Big Bang Theory. <laughs> <laughs> My money goes to Big Bang Theory. Um, and, uh, I mean, I also watched The Good Fight, but, but still, like, uh, I'm subscribing to it because of Star Trek. Like, I want my, I want, I want my money to count for that. Like, I mean, like, for something like The Expanse, which we also love, uh, you know, Dave and I at least. Oh, I, um, I also you know, love The Expanse. Yeah. Like, like, I would love to be able to actually just, like, pay money for that. Like, I mean, I guess I could just go buy the seasons too. You know, it's like, I, 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 I just recorded on my TiVo, but, um, you know, it's like, like that's 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 the kind of thing that I like being able to support in that way. Yeah. So it's nice that we can actually do that. Um, in, in the case of uh, Star Trek, uh, obviously it's the only way we can see it. But um, although I guess you can actually just buy the season after it, it it completes or something on iTunes, right? Or can you buy the individual episodes or not? Not until yeah. the season's over. For the Expanse, you can buy the individual episodes on iTunes, right? But for Star Trek, I think they also it, it is going to be on iTunes at some point, but maybe not yet. Is that right? Yeah, I, I don't know. But but uh, the thing is, John, if you're paying for CBS All Access and you're only watching Star Trek, yeah. they must know that, right? Don't they? They, they, look they at totally that? know right. that. They must have that data. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I can uh, – but but they can't know how much I don't want anyone. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will say – I mean, I agree with, with, with what Sarah and David were saying about, you know, just I'm happy to, like, support the show. Like, I think people who are, like, complaining about this, like, in a very angry way are, are being kind of silly, but – one thing that was kind of painful for me was was that I I was like um, in Australia a couple of weeks ago, and of course is that so Discovery everywhere in every country but like the U.S. and Canada oh. I think just airs on Netflix because Netflix has pl- paid like a crazy amount of money for the show as well, um, and that was just such a better experience than than CBS All Access. So it, it did make me a little bit wistful for living anywhere hmm. but the U.S. I mean, it's, nowadays it's pretty much the feeling that you have every day. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, this is why we just have to build a Star Trek-style post-scarcity civilization so that all television will be free to everyone at all times. That's the world I want to live in. Hear, hear. Make it so, I should say. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, good. I think that's a good note to end on. So we've been speaking with John Joseph Adams, Sarah Lynn Mishner, and Anthony Ha. So guys, thank you so much for joining us. I always enjoy it. Thanks a lot. Good to be here.
And that was our panel. So big thanks again to John Joseph Adams, Sarah Lynn Mishner, and Anthony Ha for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to Craig, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. I'd also like to thank William Goslin, who just increased his pledge amount. William writes, I've been listening to the show for the last year. I feel like I have a lot of similarities with Mr. Kirtley, and so very much appreciate his worldview. In one of his interviews, he mentioned a political fracas Neil Gaiman got into because of a reading he did at a library in a small Midwestern town. In the episode, Mr. Kirtley mentioned how great it would be if geeks were to become more politically active. I think if any show can help articulate a geek platform, it is this one. Let's use it. I would love to hear more about politics and politicians from the Geek Vantage. So big thanks again to William Gosling for that great comment and for supporting us on Patreon. And again, if you want to support the show, you can sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks, or make a one-time contribution via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to Brian Howry, who just made a very generous contribution to the show via PayPal. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.